Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. So we'll just start as we always do on the podcast, and I'll ask you, how are you feeling in your mind and your body right now? I'm feeling, and my my body has a little bit of energy in it. You know, I'm shimmying my shoulders. Love it. Uh, because of this cold brew that I just had. Caffeine gets me. But mentally, I'm feeling clear, clearing. I was kind of foggy this morning, but I'm clearing. I'm feeling, I'm opening up. You know, I'm ready to kind of open up and share what my life is and what my experience is and what my viewpoints are. I'm feeling very excited to talk with you because I'd be like, you know, you're brilliant and I love talking to brilliant people. So but that's, yeah, that's where I'm at. That's how I feel. I feel good. You're one of my most brilliant friends. And honestly, I feel like every time, well, if I'm going to be honest with people, you give me the Instagram content that I need. Mostly because you post about your daughter a lot and I am the person who does want all of the child content. Like I wake up for it. If I'm feeling down, I'm like, let me see if there's a cute picture of a child living their best life with full agency. Like, let me be in that life right now. But you're also a consultant and you work in diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism practices. And so Obviously, we have a lot of thoughts in common, so I really wanted to bring you on. But because I know you, I'm going to stop talking, and I would love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners and just tell them who you are in the core of you. Yeah, so my name is Derek Hall. I am a Black, queer, cis man from Hartford, Connecticut. I rep Hartford, Connecticut hard um, because I'm a Connecticut, I'm like a, a New England kid for real, whatever that means. I'm a writer, a reader, and a talker. Uh, I'm a lover of many things. I love people. I love travel. Um, I love my daughter. I love parenting. I love Black parenting, you know, or conscious Black parenting, pro-Black, conscious Black parenting. I'm a Gemini sun. Yes. Sagittarius rising. Yes. Pisces moon. So either get at me or get gone. <laughs> Call me or no. <laughs> I'm a big Afrofuturist sci-fi person. Uh, I love imagining futures where blackness exists and is flourishing um and i need that so much because in my work i talk a lot about the way that things currently are you know like ways to dismantle the white supremacist cishet patriarchy um you know through change shifting practice policy and procedure within organizations and in order to do that people have to do it within themselves first so i'm very like zoomed in to the present so my hobby if you will is to dream of futures yet realized um that's and a big can, hobby. That's a big hobby. It is. It is. It's my jam. Um, and I'm a big, what I call like a, um, an enthusiastic critic of life. 
I really like to pay attention to what's happening around me, you know, whether that's my, just my lived experience, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a movie, whether it's, you know, interactions between friends, I'm just really zoomed in and paying attention. And I'm constantly critiquing and not critiquing like tearing apart or destroying or dismantling, but just like wondering about and comparing and, you know, uh, you know so yeah, and like critiquing the things that are around me. So yeah, that's a, that's a little bit about me. I have a daughter, her name is Kamaya, she's three. I'm raising her with my partner, Boulong, uh, here in Kansas. Uh, I don't live in Connecticut currently, but I'm headed back there ASAP. Um, and being a, a father to a um, young girl child uh, is bringing me a lot of joy uh, right now in my life. How is the, I'm curious too, I grew up in Kansas, you know this. Um, I left as soon as possible, but you moved to Kansas. I'm curious about like your experience in Kansas, especially, you know, coming from Hartford, Connecticut. So I'd like to temper this by saying that I moved to Kansas maybe six months before COVID. Right. Really hit. So, you know, I haven't really been able to have the full Kansas, Kansas City you know, we're in Lawrence right now, which is a suburb about like 45 minutes away from Kansas City. Uh, so I haven't had the full Kansas experience. That said, I am not impressed. <laughs> not, I'm not a Midwesterner. People drive too slow out here. Folks are nice, but not really, um, they don't invest in relationship in my experience, you know, but again, right, most of my time here has been during a global pandemic. <laughs> so what do I know? But I, the way I typically describe Can Lawrence, Kansas, is it has everything that you need and nothing that you want. Mm. <laughs> it's like it has the things that you need in order to like, to live. But for me, you know, culture, you know, nightlife. I don't know, predominantly black and brown community, <laughs> let alone black, brown, queer community. Um, you know, that's the stuff that I want. You know, and that that doesn't exist here for me. But I've lived very well here. I'm healthy. And, and that matters. My family, you know, has flourished. So that's yeah, good. that's funny. You say like you might be impacted by the pandemic. I think you've gotten what Lawrence, Kansas has to offer personally. I <laughs> and from what I've heard from connecting with people back home, like how are things changing? Well, it sounds like things are about the same. <laughs> Besides the fact that there was a period of time you couldn't go and eat inside certain restaurants, you had to take out food like nightlife was never popping and nightlife never served black people. I was always out and about and I was always with white people, always. And so I'm like, I don't know, queer community, black queer community, I should say, because queer com white queer community is there. Um, black queer community, which is what we live for. Yeah, it, and you like gotta it. find it. <laughs> I'm a Har I'm Hartford, Connecticut, but also like Brooklyn, New York, you know? So when I'm talking about black queer community, that's what I'm talking about. Right. And that just doesn't exist out here. All of that said, there are amazing Black queer academics that are connected to KU. And I always give them props because th that is actually the community that has like lifted me up and kept me, um, you know, kept me sane uh, during my time here. So, yeah. I love that. And what about parenting in Kansas? Because I, my parents parented me in Kansas. So I'm curious about your experience being a parent in Kansas. Yeah, you know, when I when you know my partner came to me and said that she was pregnant we were in hartford connecticut at the time and you know we we're super excited and i immediately began because this is who i am i have all these goals you know i'm like what what type of environment do i want to cultivate 
in order to raise this child. And at the top of that list was a predominantly black and brown community. And because I was in Hartford, Connecticut, where I was born, where my partner's family is from, like where she was born, that kind of felt like just check and kept it moving. Um, but then as the world turned and, you know, she, there was a position that she wanted to, to take here in, in, at KU, um, at you know, University of Kansas, um, you know, suddenly we were like kind of whisked off, you know, to this not predominantly black and brown community. And in my head, I just focused on all these other goals that I had, you know, so safe community, you know, you know, lots of outdoor time, you know, a child care development center that was that has an understanding of the importance of diversity, da 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 da. Um, but for me, raising her in a predominantly black and brown community is major. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, parenting her out here has been a challenge. Uh, I left my position at a nonprofit where I was a program director to be um, Kamaya's uh, stay at home dad, you know, and I was super excited to do that. But what I didn't realize was that being a stay-at-home dad in Lawrence, Kansas would mean that I would be in a lot of rooms with a lot of white women at libraries who have no idea how to interact with me. Yes. You know, like, first of all, I think, you know, just a dad in the space is not typical out here. Um, you know, the stay-at-home dad going from, you know, the library to the park, you know, to ice cream, you know, doing all the things. Um, but then for me to be a black dad in the space and then, you know, me secretly over here, like black queer dad also, um, right. you know, just kind of, I, I wasn't able to form community around being a parent and community is so important. And so it's been, it's been tough in that way, you know, to, to raise her out here. Well, that takes us into the first segment, which is called So You've Been Told. Um, basically, I take a lot of things I find off the internet and I just get rapid fire responses from you. But I wanted to do things a little differently today because have you ever watched The Bachelor? I have not watched a full episode of The Bachelor, though I am culturally aware of its existence okay that's all you need that's all you need i'm gonna tee it up for you i wanted to talk to you about black fatherhood and you know this i reached out to you and told you this and you just kind of spoke to some of the challenges but i wanted to dig into a narrative on black fathers and if you google black fathers literally that's it you'll get a number of articles that are talking about the myth of the absent father now i bring up the bachelor because in the last season there was this horrible, horrible episode. I watched it because I, in my depression, I dig into trash TV like heavy. And so all my friends are watching it and I was like, I would like to participate in these debates. I would love to give opinions. I have a lot of them. So let me, let me do this. And there was an episode where I had a lot of opinions and nobody picked up on the fact that, so the last bachelor was a black man. And there was an episode where they reconnect him with his dad, who was an absent father. And essentially what you learn in this episode is this black father didn't really know why he was invited to be on the show. Um, he thought he was invited to like celebrate his son for being on The Bachelor. Like, it's very weird. You like, <laughs> yes, you watch and it's very uncomfortable for me as a black person to sit there and watch this black father who's excited to see his son and his son come up to him in a very confrontational matter because the bachelor, I'm guessing, the producers have asked him to confront his father about his years of being absent mm -hmm. and they spend an uncomfortable amount of time on this. I don't know how long it felt like the whole episode to me. And essentially the dad is like, wait, wait, what am I doing here? And the, and the son is like, you know, you weren't there and I need to fix this in order to have love. 
And what it does, I'm not going to talk about the rest because trash, what it does is it absolutely amplifies the narrative of the absent black father to a white audience who doesn't know they don't know anything and so they're watching this and they're like ah oh, confirmation black fathers ain't shit um <laughs> and i'm sitting there horrified and disgusted that this could even happen on mainstream television because certainly with the black bachelor they have at least one black writer black producer no they don't so the big response that i want from you is to this narrative of black fathers are absent and even if they are in their children's lives black fathers don't really parent yeah raised <laughs> immediately angry and um you know on several levels so for me you cannot have a conversation about the quote-unquote absent black father without a conversation about the yeah without a conversation about the war on drugs without a conversation around you know the systemic targeting of the black male um, in the country and in the world in which we live and so for me to to when folks talk about absent black fathers they're oftentimes placing blame or some type of um moral deficiency in the black male body and i i experience that as such a violence right because first and foremost human beings are hardwired to be in community to love to create family and this is yet another example of the dehumanization of blackness and specifically black men within the our mainstream media and within our mainstream you know uh kind of realm and so for me i'm immediately angry um because i know so well first of all i am right <laughs> a present father this is your experience right and i know so many present and involved in heavily parenting black dads so that being said, I do want to share. So my, I was not raised by my father. My father was, you know, caught up in the drug game. As the story goes, you know, my mother was like, I want to raise my son in a safe environment. And the life that my father was living was not that. And so she made some decisions to kind of take me and, and you know, do my thing. My father went off and, and did his. And so, you know, there's a certain amount of pain and a certain amount of trauma um, that exists there. And over the years, I was always very angry at my father, feeling like, you know, why, you know, why didn't you love me? Like, why didn't you show up for me, et cetera. When Kamaya was born and, you know, I was, you know, I'm married, um, you know, long-term relationship, you know, financially stable, not selling drugs in order to exist and live in a world that's trying to kill me. And I, I was looking at this little baby and was like, I kind of want to run. I want to get out of here a little bit, right? And because the 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 heaviness, the responsibility of parenting is so big. And in that moment, I was able to empathize with my father a little bit and and be able to see, not agree with, but be able to understand how a person, especially black, a socialized black male person, especially a person who's disenfranchised systemically from access to education, access to, you know, legal means of making money, you know, a history of generational trauma, right? I could see how a person would, you know, kind of short circuit or and make decisions that would lead them away from their family. And so, you know, at, I think the narrative around the absent black male father if it doesn't have that bit of empathy, that bit of compassion, I'm even more angry about it. Because while I am a very involved Black father, I also can understand, not agree, 
but can compassionately and empathetically understand if some black men or some men in general make the decision that they can't show up in their in their child's life the way they want to. And now when I look back and think about my father, I think about the space that he created in his leaving with his with the violence and the energy that was happening in his life. When he left, there was so much wonderful, positive male role models that were able to come into my life and raise me and bring me up. And me and my mother's relationship, you know, was one of the most beautiful experiences I, I've ever had. And so I, I even though he was not there, I actually thank him for being able to remove himself and do what he needed to do as a human being and allow me space to be who I am. So, you know, when I, all of that is, is what comes to mind for me when I think about, yeah, like the idea of the quote unquote absent black father. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's so interesting because I think I've heard this narrative since forever, but I've always been I've always seen black fathers in my life. Like my my black father was around, my friends' black fathers were around. So I was like, where are these absent fathers that we're all talking about all the time? Because that's the only, I think that's the only narrative that exists about black fathers, which is such a shame because like you mentioned earlier, now you're a stay-at-home dad. And so like you get to spend so much time with your daughter. And And what was that like kind of going from this place of, okay, I'm having a child. Wow, this is big. There's all these things that I have to deal with to, I actually want to play the most active role of just being at home with her. That's a pretty big leap. Yeah, you know, it was. So in my professional life, I've been in what they call, so I always diversity, equity, and inclusion focus, but really I worked predominantly in K through 12 education. And so it was kind of at the intersections of youth development work and, and you know, DEI work. And so I spent a good 10, 15 years creating programs for young people to be seen, valued, and affirmed in who they are. And I'm talking about like thousands of young people, you know what I'm saying? Like, awesome. and, you know, reading about, you know, whether it's, you know, the way that young people's brains develop, you know, social emotional learning, you know, the whole deal, ACEs, like all of the things, right? And so I have all of this knowledge about young folks and I was creating these programs and in business a lot. And then Kamaya was born and I took all of that and was just like, I wanna share this with you. Awesome. So much of my energy had been dispersed among all of this like staff and programming and biz and work. And I wanted to take that and lovingly be able to focus it on this one human being who means the world to me and mine. So for me, the biggest shift was being able to stop and look at this child and just be like, what's the world that, that you have been brought into? And how can I see value, value and affirm you so that you can interact with that world in a way that works for you, right? And not be dictated by me. Yeah. That was the biggest switch because so much of my life has been facilitating spaces for young people to interact with. And suddenly I was like, you know what? This is your world. And I'm here to just kind of help you see and get the things that you need. And I think that took a lot of paying attention to the things that she naturally gravitated towards. I mean, from the moment she was like out, you know, we had a home birth. I was there <laughs> the whole time. Um, uh, more power to you. I couldn't be there for my own birth. You're going to have to be. I'm going to have to choose someone else to be there for me. I don't know if I can do it. Right. 
but I was there from the beginning. And it's just like, as soon as this baby was born, I was like, yeah, you want to nuzzle close, nuzzle close. You know, you want to kind of be away. Great. You don't like to be bound up. Not a problem. You know, oh, the books tell me that you need to be swaddled. That's not your jam. Okay, cool. And so from the moment, so now that she's almost three, you know, and I'm like, you know, Kamaya, can I have a hug? No, that I don't want to hug. Okay. You know, Kamaya, hey, I saw that you ate all your macaroni and cheese. How about a few broccolis? That I don't want any broccoli. Okay. But at <laughs> some point, <laughs> you're going to need to eat some broccoli, right? But yeah, just I think the, yeah, the biggest thing has been really not trying to dictate to her what is right or good, but mm-hmm. instead pay attention to her and notice the things that she gravitates towards and making that more accessible and available to her. Yeah. And you have such an honest, relationship with her and I say this because I know you've you've shared some posts I think even recently I I read all of your posts which is really funny as a non-parent like I'm learning a lot just in case I guess but like you know since we're in this segment of like so you've been told I know like as a kid when when people would talk about like oh how do babies come into the world you know I was told that it was a stork um, who brought babies into the world. And you had shared this post, like, you don't have to, you shouldn't be telling your children this. And so I kind of want to hear a reaction on that. Like, how do you have these like radically honest conversations with your three-year-old about some heavier, like, yes, birthing, but like also heavier stuff about being black in this world? Ooh, yeah, a story that immediately comes to mind is, you know, Kamaya is the only black child in her classroom of maybe... 12, 13, two, three-year-olds. She's the only one. And uh, at home, you know, because both myself and my partner are very race conscious, Mm -hmm. you know, and our community knows that, we have every Black girl magic book possible. And all of the Black books that you can imagine for young kids, we have them. And so we've been reading, you know, literally to Kamaya since she was born. And so Kamaya understands herself to be Black. You know, she was two and she looked at me, she looked at her mother and she said, I'm black. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, Kamaya, you are black. Secretly in, behind the scenes, I'm like throwing a party. I'm like, yes, black awareness, right? Um, but like, on my face, I'm like, yeah, you're black, you know? And um, so what came into my mind though, was that she's gonna be in this predominantly white space with white educators who, when she says that she's black, might be corrected, right? You're not black, you're brown, or you're not black, you're tan. And that gave me pause, right? And so I, you know, went into our like, you know, messaging system with her teachers and was like, hey, y'all, Kamaya just, you know, affirmed and named that she's Black. Um, in this house, right, Black is, um, black is beautiful, Black is wonderful, it is a racial um, category, uh, but it's also culture, it's who we are, da da da. And so it's really important to me that if she says that she's Black at school, that she's affirmed, right, in that Blackness. And because kids are kids, if somebody's like, no, you're brown, I would really appreciate it if you all said, yes, Kamaya is Black and her skin is brown. Mm. Both of those things are true. And so that happened at school. You know, somebody said, oh, you're tan. And Kamaya's like, no, I'm Black. Good for her. And then she told me, she said, you know, uh, one of the kids at school said that she was tan and she said that she was Black. And I said, Kamaya, yeah, you are Black, right? Mama's Black, Dada's Black, you know, uh, your grandparents are Black. Um, how, how do you feel about that? And then she stopped and she said, mm, I'm happy. Oh. And just those little conversations, you know what I'm saying, are so important to me. Another one is, um, you know, 
I we don't use, and I, I don't know if I can say this on your podcast. I feel like I can. Um, you can we say don't whatever. Use, like, play words for her body parts, right? Um, statistically speaking, you know, Kamaya is a black girl child. She is she is at much higher risk of being sexually assaulted or molested. And so I wanted her to always have the language to describe her body parts in real terms, right? So we use vulva, we use vagina to describe, you know, her, her body parts. We use breasts, you know. And she went to school and she came home one day and she said, oh, you know, my teacher um, helped me wipe my vulva. And I had a friend over the house and the friend was like, you guys saying vulva? <laughs> like not hoo-hoo, not, you know, you know, Nana, I'm like, yes, I have her saying vulva because that is her vulva, right? And I want her to know that she has control over and can talk about who has access to her vulva and who doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. And that she has the power to name, don't touch my vulva, right? Mm -hmm. And I wanted her to have all of that language really soon, really early. That's amazing. That's just, this is a type of parenting that I am just not, it wasn't, it wasn't modeled for me. So I just think that it's such a great, narrative to share but i want to go well i mean it's going to be centered on kamaya because it's centered on you as a black father but i want to go into the main part of this podcast which is when i ask you what is no longer your ministry production as my highest purpose is no longer my min my ministry mm. for so long especially coming out of nonprofits, the nonprofit industrial complex is real and the wearing of the many hats and the constant need to reiterate I think one of the biggest lessons that being a stay-at-home dad has taught me is that there are many different forms of production and not all of them produce money, right? Mm. And a lot of the energy that I've put into Kamaya and my parenting is like even more rewarding than the amounts of money that I was making in my industry. Another one, the idea that my queerness has to be tolerated by people that love me is no longer my ministry. Queerness is my superpower. You know, uh, and the way I understand queerness is that it is both a sexual orientation and also a political orientation, right? And so for me, it is about, yeah, heavily critiquing our societal norms and imagining and stepping outside of what those norms offer, specifically centered around like, how do I show up and create space for folks to be seen in who they are, human dignity and value, right? And so... I, when I was younger, especially like growing up where I grew up, I grew up like in a very, you know, black and brown community, very heteronormative. And my queerness was something that I kind of like hid or downplayed. And then when I started to date and stuff, it was like, oh yeah, I'm queer, but you know, if you don't want to interact with that, like that's cool. Mm. And that's, that's not my, my ministry anymore. I don't need to hide who, you know, who I am. Yeah, and I'm curious about the myth or the belief, because they're not all myths. In some cases, especially when you're hiding parts of your identity related to your sexuality, it is also about safety. But I'm, I'm, I wanted to name that. But I'm curious about like what you were holding on to that made you feel like you had to compartmentalize that part of you, especially growing up. And then what led to the point where you're like, actually, I don't have to do that. Yeah, definitely safety. You know, I don't. I'm 35. I'll name that. And young. recently, 35 years young. And for real though, like when I was growing up, gay was not an identity. Mm. Queerness was not a word. That just wasn't even a thing like where I grew up. And, and gayness, gay wasn't an identity. It wasn't a thing that you could be. It was a name that you were called. It was a slur. 
it was used to describe you as weak. And so in that way, like to, you know, I knew very early on that like I had feelings about men and other folks that wasn't in the norm. And so it just simply wasn't safe <laughs> to, yeah. to grab hold of that, you know, for me as a person who is in, who can be in wonderful relationships with women and, you know, non-men folk and like everybody, you know, mm-hmm. it just, yeah, it wasn't safe. And then, but then as I grew up in the world, you know, kind of turned, yeah, I was able to see myself reflected in, you know, different communities, maybe not the one that I was in, but in communities around me, you know, and I think a large, another large part of it is the internet. The internet changed a lot, you know, like I am one of those 35 year olds who remembers a time before the internet and social media, I lived it. And yeah. so you really didn't really know. Yeah. You know, the people around you, you know what I'm saying? You might've heard that somebody over here was, was gay, but it wasn't like a, but then once the internet hit, it was like, oh, not only can I see you, but I can see pictures of and the life that you live and the words that you type and the way that you type them. And oh, I'm a part of a larger community. And so I think that happened. I went to college and then learned, you know, a ton as, as you do about myself and about the possibilities of how to be in the world. And then I started claiming it, you know, I'm a smaller body man, you know, five, 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 four, um, you know, slim, you know, and the world started to see me and see my body and see the way that I am in the world is beautiful, you know, the queer community specifically. And so I think that did a lot for me once I was able to find community and they were able to value me and who I was. Because before that, I was like, I'm never tall enough. I'm not big enough to be the guy that girls want me to be. Right. Um, but the queer community loved me through through and out of that to where to some real self-love. And so I would say all that. And then lastly, just like finding, you know, Boulong, you know, the person I'm married to and, you know, being loved and seen and exactly who I am and then being able to also reflect that back to her. And then being able to, you know, have a child and build a life together has really just made me look at myself and say, you know what, this is wonderful. And your queerness is a huge part of that. It's not something to just be tolerated uh, mm. by the people who love you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about you entering in your relationship with Bulong. I mean, Bulong's a friend of mine. I love her so much. But at that time, did you, you're both queer. So did you both enter your relationship as two queer people or like, did you guys have that laid out before things sparked? Yeah, we definitely did. Um, we met each other as two queer folks in the world. You know, I think back to, I think Boulong was like newly coming into her queerness. And I, I was like securely in mine. You know, I was sitting people down. Hello, my name is Derek. I'm queer. How do you feel about that? Not cool. <laughs> don't even drink. We can go. <laughs> we don't have to do this if that's not for you. And I think that our early courtship and Boulong's real interest in me was rooted in like here's this man that I'm attracted to that's intelligent that you know that I click and connect with who is also queer Mm. and what does that mean right to be in relationship with a queer man and for me you know Boulong you know is a very beautiful intelligent wonderful human who I who is one of the first cis black women who I didn't feel like I needed to hide from Mm. so much of my life and when I would date Black cis women specifically, you know, again, where I'm, where I'm coming from, I felt like I had to hide that in order for them to see me and enough to then be able to share it. Mm. But with Boulong, I felt like I could name it, you know, right from the beginning and that it would be held. And, and it yeah. was. I asked this question because I have a lot of 
friends who enter in a relationship, you know, you're both queer, but you're also like man, woman in a relationship. So people are like, what does that really even mean? Like what? Because <laughs> I guess they really just can't think beyond the box. So what does it mean for you two to be a queer couple? But like if you're just walking around, not actually sharing your queerness, people don't assume that right. identity for you. Yeah, we definitely have what folks call like visible straight privilege. I think that we look like a, you know, I look like, quote unquote, whatever that means, a man. She looks like a woman. We are in relationship with each other. We look straight. Um, <laughs> so, our, so to be real, like our queerness doesn't necessarily live there. Um, the way I typically answer that question is number one, queerness is like a very, it's a personal identifier, right? It's what does your queerness mean to you? And so my queerness, I think, lives in my affect. I think it lives in the, the way that I look at the world, the way I look at world issues. I think it lives in the way that I dress. You know, I think it lives in, you know, the food I like to eat, the restaurants I like to go to, the friends that I have, uh, my community, um, the shows I watch. It lives in that space. And I think it's important to remind people that, again, queerness, while it is a sexual orientation, is not just a sexual orientation, right? My queerness is not just about who I want to sleep with. My queerness is about my dedication to Black feminist thought and praxis. My queerness is in my support of, you know, Black, trans, non-binary human beings politically and relationally. You know, my queerness is in the way that I navigate and facilitate through conflict and challenge in my life. My queerness informs the way I go about that work. It informs the way that I have to, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, be aware of toxic masculinity and ways that I was socialized to assert my maleness over, you know, folks who don't carry maleness the way that I do. So it's all of that. I feel like I tell people all the time, like, if you spend any amount of time with me, you will see that queerness informs all parts of my life and has, and doesn't have a ton to do with who I quote unquote sleep with right mm -hmm. now. And it has a ton to do uh, with the types of people that I can have and support and love around me. Yeah. And does it, this is the last question for this segment, so I can move into the work that you've been doing to kind of foster this energy and environment for yourself. But does it also inform the first thing you had said in response to what is no longer your ministry is this, is this like standard idea of productivity um, mm -hmm. being the, the most important thing? Does your queerness inform that as well? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think that, you know, straight Derek, when I was young, there was always this way of being and doing that I was always reaching for. I wanted to be taller. I wanted to be more muscular. I wanted to be, I wanted my voice to be deeper. You know, um, I wanted, you know, I couldn't just be with one girl. I had to be with five girls. You know, I had to, so that I could show everybody how masculine I am. There was always this thing that I was trying to reach for and get to, you know, and then as I got older, it was, I needed to make a lot of money. I mm -hmm. needed to drive the best car. You know, what queerness gave me was a kind of, you can just exist in your body and that is enough. Mm. You do not need to reach and you're going to reach and attain, but not because you're trying to be something to someone else or to get validation from someone else. You are going to attain and reach for the things and move in the direction of your desires, yeah. right? And to know, to get in touch with what those true desires are. Right, queerness gave me the, the ability to stop reaching for things in order to be seen as good, but to go within 
and be able to recognize the goodness that already exists there and then make it manifest in other parts of my life. You know, when I was identifying and thinking in a straight way, and that might be hard for people to understand, but that's, this was real for me. I was constantly trying to be so that other people would love me or see me as valuable. And now as a queer person, I just don't have that. I don't have that. I love that. That's, we all need to get there. I just feel like we all, we all need to be queer. That's the, that's the solution. <laughs> don't get me started. Cause I have a theory. I have a theory. You know what I'm saying? I'm like outside of these systems, outside of the world telling us that we need to be straight. I think human beings would generally be what we now consider to be queer and or open. The, I think actually the minority of folks would be like straight only. And most folks would be like, you know, like I'm around. <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> You know, hey, but. I'm around. I want to be around. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so we're, we're here in the third segment. It's the work for me. You've talked a lot about this freedom of expression, but I imagine that because of the constraints of this world that we live in and the constraints of the narratives that are put upon us, it's hard to just maintain that mentality all of the time. There are so many things telling us, like, we actually do need to make a lot of money. We actually do need to be this perfect body, this perfect person, just this perfect standard of whiteness. And really, like, for me, especially in the way that my mental illnesses show up, I will find myself like going down all these spirals of thoughts and then coming to this realization like, wow, the whole time that you, the, the whole thing that you've been fighting against is this really white standard that you actually don't give a shit about. Right. But like, how did we get here? You know this already, but here we are again, feeling this feeling. And so I'm curious about what you do to keep your mind right. And like, what kind of work do you put in to make sure that you're not reverting back to some pretty toxic old ways of straight, yes. Eric? <laughs> yeah, I'm smiling so hard because what immediately came to mind, first and foremost, is the saving body that is the Black queer community. I just, I really, I want to articulate the miraculousness of free Black people getting together, right? Seeing and loving and valuing each other in the way that that creates for me a mental and emotional stability, mm. you know? Um, I think one thing that comes to mind is I, when I was younger, you know, I wore super baggy clothes, you know, because that's what dudes do, you know, that was the style. baggy clothes, you know, and I had a friend named Alexis, who was this beautiful black, you know, um, a, a black woman of size, you know, identified as a lesbian and, you know, very femme. And she looked at me and she said, why are your clothes so big? And I was like, oh. <laughs> like, what's wrong with my clothes being big? And she was like, well, do you feel comfortable in them? And I was like, not really, but like, you know, this is how, you know, we supposed to dress. And she was like, let me, let me take you. So we went to the mall and it was my first time ever being in H&M because H&M was not a store that like straight dudes was supposed to be in, whatever. <laughs> you know, again, this was the 90s into the 2000s, you know what I'm saying? Okay, okay. Um, and, you know, she put me in my first pair of skinny jeans, you know, and they weren't, I'm, I'm small, so they weren't super skinny, but they were super <laughs> fitted, you know, and, you know, it worked. The booty was popping, you know, Always. through the thigh, you know, and I was like, oh, wow. And then she put me in my first, like, extra small shirt. I was, I realized that I would have been living through this lens 
that shirts needed to be medium or large because it was a, you know, if your shirt was small, then you, that meant you were small. And if you're a small man, then that means that you're not attractive or valuable. Mm. But she put me in a shirt and it fit well. Again, I was very small. So it, it like, it wasn't tight. It was just the right size. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I healed. Hmm. There was a healing in looking at my clothes that fit my body, not the body that I wished I had, this larger body, but no clothes that actually fit the body that I have in this moment and flatter me. And I looked at her with tears in my eyes and I was like, thank you so much for like bringing me here to this place, you know, and dressing me. Cause I felt for so long, like that's what I needed to do. You know, I, I, I need to be bigger. I wish I was bigger. And she was like, you are exactly what you need to be. And you cute and you fine. Like, and now you look even better. And it is moments like that and a million others that is possible in black queer community that like has gotten me all the way together. Yeah. Another, another thing that keeps me together is therapy. Straight up, you yeah. know, I, and I'll name, I know I've been talking about a lot of black stuff, but this is my universe. A black woman therapist has saved my life many a time, mm. many a time going to therapy regularly, being honest in therapy, going for long periods of time and taking breaks. You know, people don't talk about that a lot, but it's okay to take breaks from talk therapy and try somatics and other things, but definitely that. And then for me, the last part that I'll say that keeps me together is imagination. Mm. I am dedicated to growing and feeding my imagination. Yes, as a black cis queer man, you know, in the world in which I live, but then also just as like a human being who has a spirit that is in this corporeal form that is like on this planet that is just spinning and dust, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like just as, you know, my imagination matters. And so I oftentimes I write, I journal regularly, you know, I tell myself stories all the time. Uh, try not to create narratives um, about myself and others, but you know, uh, but yeah, storytelling internally has really helped me make sense of the world around me and, and keep me sane. You said something that I want to go back to, and I don't know if you were giving me something or if I'm just, I overanalyze everything, but you were saying like being honest in therapy. And I wanted to go back to that because I do remember a lot of times where I was dishonest in therapy. And I wonder if that's something that you also experienced and like why you are now truly honest in therapy. To be honest with you, my therapist called me out on it. She was like, this feels very surface. Mm. What is the work that you actually want to do? And I'm, you know, oh, I want to work on, you know, my assertiveness and sense of self. And she's like, mm-mm and said, mm-mm, mm-mm <laughs> is different than, well, no, Derek, I think there might be, no, 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 mm-mm, from a black woman mean, mm-mm. You can't, means, no, you yeah, can't come back you, from that. I see what you're doing, and mm-mm. And, you know, and she asked me to pause, and she asked me to breathe, and she asked me to orient where, you know, when I think about the work that I want to do, where I feel that in my body. You know, and I was feeling it right around my gut where my anxiety lives. And she said, I would like you, when you think about the work that you want to do or the way that you interact with our sessions, I'd like you to feel a, like a lightness in, in our interactions. I'd like you to feel like the things that you're sharing are going to be held and seen and valued. You know, she's like, I don't want you to, to be always in your head. I want you to be a little bit more 
in your body. And then once I got into my body, the things that I was saying out of my mouth were now informed by my real experience. Mm. And, and, the, and I was surprised by the things that I was, that I began to say and actually talk about the things that felt important to me, not the things that I thought were important, but the things that I felt were important. And then, and that, that right there, her response to those ideas and the, the, the path that those ideas took me down, you know, was actually what allowed me to begin to transform parts of my life where I was where I actually was experiencing like trauma and, and responding from a triggered place and, mm. and, and on all of that. And so, yeah, it, that's what got me there. I think that people don't realize how, I don't know how to put this. I started doing couples therapy with my partner and it was his first experience in therapy and it is his first experience. And one thing that we kind of, and I don't think he would be uncomfortable with me sharing this. One thing that he learned really early on is that he's never been in spaces where he's had to share his feelings. Mm-hmm. So going like, and like that, I mean, that is very typical for like black men, cis, like in hyper-masculine environments. Cause my boyfriend is Nigerian and like, I grew up with a Nigerian <laughs> father. Yeah. Ooh, toxic masculinity everywhere. And so like as simple as just being like, okay, well, how did that make you feel? We'll spend a whole session and he won't be able to identify it. And it's like having, you know, fortunately for you, having that black woman therapist being like, you're not like, mm -mm." like for real, like this is not, this is, I just think that is so powerful. But I also didn't want to leave off the imagination component of what you talked about as well, because I truly believe that black people need imagination to survive. Because how would we get through all that we get through without envisioning a world that is not like the one we're in? That part. And I want to name too, the, I don't like the word, um, but I talk about it a lot. The privilege of imagination, the time to just wander in your mind, to daydream, you know, daydreaming, you know, when I think about it through a historical lens, especially as it relates to Black people, you know what I'm saying? Like, there are whole systems, whole ways of thinking that are meant to keep Black people from imagining and to keep us from, like, to keep us busy, to keep us running, to keep us doing, whether that is literally taking care of white people's kids or out on the fields or, you know, trying to survive cap- the white supremacist capitalist system. Like, there's all of this stuff that keeps us from simply imagining and I, you know, to be real about it, like even with COVID, you know what I'm saying? I feel like the world had a moment to sit back and just rest for a second and to stay the F home, right? Like, yeah. and out of that place, people was like, oh, I've been working like in, at an inhuman rate. <laughs> like I could probably do my same job, you know, and do like in, in a small amount of time and be able to live my life differently. You know, I don't have to go to this job and I'm stressed out by the time I get there. And I just, the power of imagination, especially black imagination is, I just think it's such an untapped resource, you know, and I'm so glad to see black intellectuals and, and just regular, regular, regular black people just sitting back writing and thinking and putting out content, dancing, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, yes, Black people do that. You know, that's what we deserve. How are you inspiring imagination in Kamaya? First of all. <laughs> in this Leo child. 
Kamaya thinks that she is always on stage. She's a Leo Leo. She's a Leo sun, Leo rising, Pisces moon. Okay. So she's always on stage. And like, you know, Bulong and I like musicals. So, you know, she, Kamaya grew up watching Hamilton and now in the Heights and, you know, and so Kamaya just will sing, you know? And then, you know me, so you sing it. I'm going to start singing. Kamaya be like, no, it's my turn. It's my turn. And I'm like, okay, sis, you know, don't, don't let me get in the way of, yeah. So she'll sing. Um, we have a lot of, uh, I have like art stations, you know, so she has like her easel. And then what she creates, I put up on the wall. You know what I'm saying? She creates it, I put it on the wall, whatever it is. And I don't, at first I made like a big deal of it, but now I just put it up. And so she can see the things that she creates. Um, you know, when Kamaya, I, I'm a language person, so I try to help her, you know, un- pronounce words correctly uh, through my lens, whatever that means. <laughs> and sometimes Kamaya's just like, no, I'm going to say it like this. I like it better this other way. And I'd be like, okay, you want to, you know, you want to name your doll uh, Bayana? She's really Brianna. I'm like, Brianna, Brianna. She's like, it's Bayana, dada. I'm like, okay, you're right. This this Black Mermaid doll's name is Bayana. I'm with it. She's like, I uh-huh. told you how to pronounce it. I would like you to pronounce her name correctly. Right. So again, I think the, the, the strategy there is to offer her what I understand to be, right, the, the pronunciation or whatever the, mm-hmm. the thing is. But, and then when she really wants it to be a different way, being able to affirm that in her, because her imagination is endless. And the way that she experiences things and names them and sings and dances is hers. Um, it's not mine. You know, so that's how I try to encourage it. I'm so excited to see her grow. I just, I, I will live for Kamaya content till the day I don't breathe. I am going to, and I want to be friends with her, but I don't know if she's feeling me yet. Cause she doesn't know me like that. Sometimes she don't be feeling me, you know, and I've been doing <laughs> since day one. I'm that day one, a one. And sometimes she'd be like, you could go too. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. So last segment, um hashtag i'm not sorry because i need to get through whatever i'm getting through right now what is your way of kind of taking a break from the work taking a break from doing the work of healing and just being at ease yeah i'm not sorry that i like take uh daddy vacations you know as the the stay-at-home dad uh you know bulong and i are you know we are strategically lucky enough (laughs) to be able to take vacations together as a family Mm -hmm. but also she takes mommy vacations where she goes off and does her own thing and I take daddy vacations and I go off and do my own thing for a week or two you know this past time I was in I had to go back to the east coast to be with like friends and family out there and I just kibitzed around you know Philly New York Connecticut you know um, and that was wonderful I'm not sorry that like I take my rest real serious you know like Kamaya goes down at 8 30 your boy is asleep by nine I you know people be like oh you know you got Kamaya down you know come out have a drink Da-da-da. sometimes yes you know because I'm Gemini Sag you know I'm like all right I'm out here but other times I'm like nah I gotta I need to rest you know yeah I feel like I'm not sorry that like I really will disappear into my reading you know in my writing so I try to spend at least two hours a day in early in, early in the morning writing or reading. That's um, a good discipline. And I protect that time. You know, I wake up earlier in order to do it. And I think lastly, yeah, I'm not sorry 
Yeah, I think that it's very easy as a parent to focus in only on your kid, only on your partner, only on your work because you need money. I take my friendships, my platonic relationships very serious and I create time for them. And, and I feel like that's actually like a secret sauce to my ability to show up right-sized in my parenting and in my partner and my, my relationship is that I take my platonic relationships really seriously too. And, that, and it doesn't detract from, you know, my ability to be a, to be a dad and a partner. Yeah, what does that look like? Because I don't think people really focus on their platonic relationships as much as they should. Listen, I wake up in the morning, get Kamaya together, da, 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 da. I go to my phone, you know, I work out a little bit, drink some water, yada, yada. And now I'm texting my, my people, good morning. You know, my friends, good morning, sun face, you know, smiley face. Um, you know, I'm going through their Instagram. I'm like laughing at their memes, you know, <laughs> if I perceive any of my friends to be like in a struggle. And I'm, when I say this, I'm like, I'm sending seven, eight text messages, you know, <laughs> especially during the pandemic. But like, even now, you know, yeah. um, I'm sending messages. I'm being intentional about my connections with people. You know, if I perceive one of my friends to be struggling, you know, whether it's mentally or emotionally, you know, I'm sending that, hey, you know, thought about you today. Mm-hmm. How you live, you know, something that made you smile today, you know. When I go on my vacations, you know, my daddy vacations, I'm meeting up with my people, yeah. you know, letting them know ahead of time so they can schedule it out, you know, because we grown, we all got stuff to do. But then I'm meeting up, I'm making the time, you know, to meet and, and to be vulnerable in those spaces. You know, I'm not just like, you know, we're not just watching a, a baseball or football game. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're connecting about our lives mm-hmm. uh, and really call it. And, I, and I, to be honest with you, and I know it, it may sound strange. I tell people, especially my friends and people I'm supposed to meet, that I love them and why. Mm. Like, I love this about you. You know, I really appreciate and value our friendship. I say it in words. I want to normalize that. You know, and that's relationships with men, women, and every everybody else, right? In in my platonic relationships, I'm very upfront about the love and the care and the importance of those relationships to the people that I'm that I'm in relationship with. I love that. I just recently started, I did not grow up in a household that said, I love you ever. And in my, I feel like in the later years of me moving away from home, my mom started saying, I love you. And I was like, oh, weird. Uh, love you too. <laughs> I had to get used to it. But these days, as soon as I feel love for someone, I tell them right away. And it throws people off. Like I have, yes. cause like I have good work friends now. And you know, you have those work friends that you really vibe with. Like you actually spend more time talking about your real life than working with them. And at the end of calls, at the end of work meetings, I'll be like, love you really. <laughs> and some right. people are like, and I'm like, but I do love you. Right. Like, you know, my whole heart. So right. I do love you. I love that we're in a place, both of us, where we can actually articulate our love in our platonic relationships because they're actually the things that keep us going, that keep us healthy, that keep us healing. Oof, that part, you know, we, we take it for granted. You sit down, I've had conversations with my best friend that have actually pulled me back from the brink, you know, making bad decisions, whether it's ex- like, you know, interpersonally and, and or and internally, yeah. right? And they and Think about it. I've had best friends interrupt narratives that I've had my whole life about myself and in the moment that I was able to put that narrative down, a brother bloomed. And I mean, what, I, I can't thank him enough. You know, right. I can't be in gratitude enough for someone being able to, um, you know, uh, help you remove your chains. 
you know, and a lot of my platonic, you know, as well as romantic relationships um, have helped me remove my chains. And so I give my people their flowers now. I give them their flowers. I give them, you know, their eat street orders. I order food for my friends. I'll be like, Not eat street. <laughs> eat street, Uber, you know, going in Kansas. Um, I know. I was like, I haven't heard eat streets. <laughs> eat street, because um, we're in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, yeah. You know, I give all of that to them now, you know, because yeah. they deserve it. This podcast is a labor of love, and too often, labor by Black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated, and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that's no longer my ministry.com. Also, Wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning in to next week's community release. Bye, fam.